0: Please, please give a standing ovation to uh, David. Thank you. You're welcome, David. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you to Veterans for Common Sense uh, and to Gene and Mike and Jeff and everybody and... uh, all the other groups and the local radio station here. Um, I, I, I would make the worst candidate for president of the United States because I say the same thing no matter which group I'm talking to. But I still like to have some idea who I'm talking to. Raise your hand if you think some wars sometimes are justified. Not that many. Not that many, this is you know because i'm I'm going to respectfully try to persuade those of you who raised your hands that, in fact, war is never justified, that in fact there's not a good war that in fact, trying to find a just war and a good war is no better than trying to find just slavery or just torture or just rape that it's that it's a mistake of concept um, i I think there's an obvious danger if we say, well, this war is bad, and this war is bad, and this war is bad, but there might be a good one next month, and it's a danger that Eisenhower warned us about, and that is that dumping all of our grandchildren's unearned money to the tune of about a trillion dollars a year in the United States and another trillion from the rest of the world combined into this criminal enterprise makes the wars happen. It makes them more likely, not less likely. So if we have to be prepared because there might be a good war, well, then that's unfortunate. And maybe the United States could cut back to merely three or four times the next leading military spender in the world and be okay, or cut back a little bit from where it is. But if war is never useful and never moral and never legal and never justified, well, then we're rolling in money because tens of billions a year can end starvation worldwide tens of billions clean drinking water any any place that doesn't have it tens and hundreds of billions can transform the world in terms of medicine and food and agriculture and clean energy we can you know do things for green sustainable energy and climate protection that the environmentalists don't dare dream of if we start looking at that money so this is this is the number one way in which war kills it's not some particular type of weapon or exercise or troop or theater it's the money getting put into this instead of into useful things. So if we can get where I want to get to the idea that war is never okay, then you know we could, ha- we could have another second equal pile of money if we go back to taxing billionaires and corporations. But short of that, we can have resources to do things we don't dare dream of if we stop doing war. So my book, War is a Lie, actually came out of... Iraq 2003, and and very smart people telling me, you know, this is unheard of. This is unprecedented. A U.S. president lying the American people into a war. This has never happened before. What an outrage. And and I went back and looked at every war I could find in U.S. history and pre-U.S. history and internationally uh, for millennia. And I couldn't find a war that wasn't fundamentally based on lies, and most of them very similar types of lies. So I didn't, I didn't catalog every war in the book. I cataloged the types of lies to prepare people to recognize earlier. Because, yes, some wise people, like Gene, recognized on the spot there's a problem in 2003. But a majority of the US public in the polls recognized it in 2004 and said we never should have started that war and on Afghanistan around 2002 or three a majority and ever since then has said no we never should have started that war so what if we could what if we could recognize the problem sooner what if we could recognize that even if every single lie was true and all those weapons were there is no justification for a war morally, legally, practically or otherwise that if the Gulf of Tonkin incident actually happened, it was on the coast of Vietnam, which the United States was bombing. Who was doing the aggression? So if we recognize that they're very likely lying, and then we ask ourselves, are we actually even asking the right question? We can recognize the problem with the sales pitches for new wars quite quickly. just, just those of you who raised your hand to say some wars are good, some wars are justified or necessary or unavoidable, raise your hand again if you can name the seven countries where the United States is at war right now. How about some? But were you among that group? Maybe I Okay, go for it. Well, it, it, there's a problem here, right, because with the special forces who are no longer special numerically and are larger than most nations whole entire militaries, uh, there's some 75 countries where the U.S. is doing stuff and we don't even know what the whole list is. Uh, but Nigeria and Congo were not even on my list, uh, which is you know, the seven countries that President Obama has bragged about bombing, the seven countries where there's publicly acknowledged significant... U.S. military, yeah, Pakistan. Okay, very, very, very good. Most of them. Uh, the, my, my point in asking this is not to, you know, quiz you on on statistics, but to make the, the point that never before in the history of the earth, not the Roman Empire or anybody else, did people have the inability to even keep track of their wars. In the United States now, for the first time in world history, you have a society where we cannot even keep track of our wars, and yet we have a huge number of people who say some wars are justified. But if you don't even know where the wars are, have you decided which ones are justified and which ones aren't, and how have you made that determination? The, the, the seven that, that I was looking for, and you, you got most or all of them between you, uh, were Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan and Pakistan and Libya and Somalia and Yemen. Now, yesterday, uh, yesterday they had more amendments on the so-called Defense Authorization Act than they could fit deck chairs on a Titanic. And they were voting them up and down and denying votes to them. And Congresswoman Barbara Lee got a vote that, uh, that failed about two to one on repealing the authorization for the use of military force. This was the the document in 2001 that said go ahead and attack Afghanistan and go after Al-Qaeda. And uh, and her office put out a press release uh, this morning saying, you know, we tried, they voted it down, the darn thing is still in place. Of course it doesn't actually <laughs> justify any of these wars because most of these wars have nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. But, She said in there that this authorization to use military force has been used 37 times for actions in 14 countries. So doubling uh, the seven. Uh, And I asked her office uh, what they were, and they sent me a whole report from the Congressional Research Service. And they included Djibouti, Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, the Philippines, Georgia, and the prison in Cuba. All of which, uh, you know, whether you want to call each thing a war or not all of which actions have been incredibly counterproductive, damaging, disastrous, immoral, and illegal. Um, How about if somebody asked you to give the official military names for each of the current wars? My my favorite is Operation Inherent Resolve. And if you go to inherentresolve.mil, the website... It isn't there. It doesn't work. They don't have the resolve to keep their website up. They also don't have the resolve in Congress to vote for the damn thing or not. The president comes to them in his final state of the union and says, I'm going to have a war in Syria and Iraq with or without you, and they cheer. They cheer. You know, they're a bunch of court jesters. They don't pretend to have any say in the matter, and they don't want it because we could blame them. Why we can't blame them for not doing their job, I don't know. But we would blame them whichever way they voted if they took a vote. How about, how about how many of the current wars are run by central command in Tampa Bay? Very good. Five out of those seven are in central command. This is also new to the world. Never before in the history of the world has a military power divided up the globe and outer space and cyberspace and everywhere else into zones of responsibility so that you have the European Command and the Pacific Command and squeezed in the middle there in Western Asia, Central Command run out of Tampa, Florida, uh, and uh, on top of that, Northern Command and Southern Command. Uh, Areas of responsibility. Nobody, not a person who lives there, asked Central Command to take responsibility for their lives and their nations. It just does it. And it does it disastrously uh, in, in, as Gene said, making us less safe, not more safe. Every time, I've got a whole list on a website, every time a top commander from one of these operations, a top uh, director of national intelligence or CIA official retires, they blurt out that they're creating more enemies than they're killing, that it's counterproductive that it's not working, that it's moving us backwards. Uh, and yet nobody, nobody who's still in says that. Um, look at look at the ways that war has been normalized. A, a candidate in a presidential debate asked as part of your basic responsibilities as president, are you willing to kill thousands of innocent children? And it, and it barely makes the news. It's just a standard question in a presidential debate in last December. No other country ever before or now could see such a thing happen. This is a uniquely American normalization of mass murder. Look at bases. Never before in the world has a military had this many military bases and troops present in, in locally owned bases all over the world. You, got, you watch a basketball game tonight, they may thank the troops for watching in 175 countries. You know, there are fewer than 200 countries in most lists of countries. You go try to find the ones that aren't, that don't have U.S. troops, and they're the ones that are being depicted to you as as menaces to to peace on Earth. They are Iran and Syria and so forth. Uh, I read this morning that Argentina has agreed to allow the United States to build a brand-new military base on the very tip of South America. Now, will you feel safe until that base is built or not? Personally, I feel threatened until we have that base. Uh, Our our veteran veteran for peace hero Smedley Butler said, put the U.S. military within 200 miles of the United States. That would save 90% of U.S. military spending and eliminate 90% of the hostility that the U.S. military generates abroad. Imagine if Canada was going to try to generate anti-Canadian terrorist networks on a U.S. scale, what it would have to do for years to how many countries, you know? Scale it back, you know? We, we don't have to even end it yet. Just scale it back and watch the arms race switch into the, the right direction instead of the wrong one. Troops, in, the, the number of troops, the number of, of dollars spent by the U.S. military, more on the Pentagon under President Obama than any previous president, and this doesn't count... Homeland Security, this doesn't count nukes in the Energy Department, mercenaries in the State Department. The State Department itself has an arm of the war machine. It, it, the care for veterans, it, the debt payments on past wars. You're, you're talking about over half of the money that Congress decides what to do with every year going to militarism. This is an incredible waste of money. The, uh, the, the House of, of Misrepresentatives, by the way, yesterday decided that they were going to pass the budget in such a way that they were going to loot some of the money from the slush fund for wars, which, you know, they're not wars anymore because we have a democratic president. Now they're overseas contingency operations for the benefit of humanity. But the, the, sa- the slush fund for wars they're going to loot some of that to pay for some of the, the you know, the airplanes and basic stuff they want to blow money on for their campaign funders and jobs in their districts. And so this is going to be the fight between the House and the Senate and the, you know, the so-called warmongers and the so-called peace advocates in Washington is, you know, this little pinch of the military spending, are, are we going to stop having an extra slush fund for wars? But the point of doing that is that they've timed it so that in April, under a new president – They can do a new supplemental war spending bill, and they're hoping it's gonna be big. Um, The the permanent military industrial complex, the lawlessness of the wars, we have moved in, in an incredibly dangerous direction. Under George W. Bush, at least he had to go to Congress and tell a bunch of lies and get an authorization that they abused for 15 years, but at least he had to do that. Now the president just goes to war. In Libya, in all the drone wars, in Yemen, in Iraq, in, in Syria, you know, it, without Congress, without the United Nations, without anybody, goes through a list. If, if, if you're a, a loyal Democrat, you may have avoided hearing about this for the past five years or so, but our president goes through a list of men, women, and children on Tuesdays and picks which ones to have murdered with missiles from drones, this, this would have overthrown our government if a Republican tried such a thing. This is outrageous. It is also lawless. It is completely outside the rule of law. Uh, and we, we have the precedent being set for whoever moves into the White House next, whoever comes into Congress next, that the wars are just going to happen largely in secret. And the U.S. public is going to learn about where the next drone war is from foreign media reports. You know, and, and they're gonna brag they brag about the drone wars. Yemen was a success for drone wars. People used to come up to me and say, I love the drone wars so much better because with the drone wars nobody gets killed. Right. When you write off ninety-six percent of humanity as nobody's, then you know this is the basis of the problem. But the drone wars predictably become ground wars. You now have small US ground wars in Yemen, in Libya again, in Iraq again, in Syria. Still in Afghanistan, right? perfectly primed for major escalation into bigger ground wars by whoever comes next, whoever gets in charge of the machine next. Um, How many of you came here today because you heard me on a radio show with a host named Rob Lorai in Tampa, Florida? Uh, a bunch. A, a number of you came, came and uh, talked to me earlier, so I thought it was more. But uh, thank you for listening to that. I, I was asked on that show, can you tell us about military contracts in Tampa? And I couldn't, so I looked them up. And past 15 years, Tampa got $10.8 billion in military contracts. Sarasota, $1.2 billion to 165 companies in the past 15 years. But if you look at Sarasota taxes being paid by individuals out of Sarasota just to the Department of so-called defense, already $103 million this year, $250 million by the end of the year, $4 billion over the next 15 years. So by that measure, certainly not getting back what you're paying in, uh, and certainly the nation as a whole is not getting back anywhere close to what it's paying in. And imagine how it sounds to that other 96% of humanity when we talk about military spending as a jobs program anyway, even if it were true that it's economically beneficial. But it isn't. And spending the same dollars on infrastructure, education, energy, or even tax cuts for ordinary people produces more jobs, better paying jobs, better economic results than dumping the money into war. It's actually a drain. It's actually damaging purely on an economic level. Um, CENTCOM, among CENTCOM's wars, of course, is Syria. Now, Syria 2013 was incredibly encouraging to me because I wrote the first edition of this book that's now been updated to the moment, but I wrote the first edition of this book five years ago. And then in 2013, President Obama... And Secretary of State and uh, former veteran activist, John Kerry, went on TV and said, look at these YouTubes. Look at these children dying from chemical weapons. And we swear to you that the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, did this. And we won't show you the evidence, but we swear we know it for a fact. And because of this, in this war of multiple parties killing tens of thousands of men, women, and children on every side with all kinds of weapons, he's used the wrong weapon. And therefore, you know, according to the warmongers, uh, John McCain and gang, you know, they stepped across Obama's red line and we'll lose our credibility if we don't kill a lot of people. We must we must bomb Syria. And this was a plan that, as Seymour Hersh later reported, was going to be a massive bombing campaign of every military target in Syria was going to be bombed in 2013. Raytheon stock never been higher before or since. Every media outlet Both political parties, everybody in power said, this is about to happen. And in fact, Obama promised John McCain and everybody else, I'm going to do this. We're going to bomb Syria. And it was like a perfect storm of activism. You had 10 years of people raising hell about Iraq and making Iraq a badge of shame, not honor, overturning the Congress in 2006, making it impossible for Hillary to get a nomination in 2008 because people still remembered Iraq. Uh, You had Congress members on break doing public events, being confronted. Why should we get in a war on the side of Al-Qaeda? I thought you said they were the devil for the past 10 years. You had the House of Commons in England vote against, take an actual vote. They have votes they aren't sure they're going to win, unlike Congress, And, and vote against the Prime Minister's demand and for war for the first time since Yorktown. You, you had more phone calls and emails into the U.S. Congress than ever before on anything, banker, bailout, war, peace, anything. Uh, and you had that public pressure add up to the point where uh, Barack Obama ad, you know, admits in the Atlantic magazine recently that it was largely public pressure that caused him to decide to reverse his decision and not bomb Syria. Now, it, 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 this was not just looking at polls. In the polls, the public was even more against arming proxies and training fighters, and they escalated that immediately. First, first because President Obama is a serious intellectual, he asked the CIA for a report on whether arming proxies has ever worked, and it came back and said no. And then he did it so you know that's the that's that's the the intelligent way to do things well they, they claimed they claimed Afghanistan as the one time that it worked but there was a bit of blowback most people have heard of and and so they, they started arming and training but now they're arming and training CIA fighters who are fighting Pentagon fighters in Syria I mean this is what a mess it is now but in 2013 The big public debate that was made a question for the public, and the public was told it had some say in the matter, was should Syria be bombed? And everybody said no. And they said no because it was too close to Iraq. And Obama reversed his decision because of the public pressure but also because it was very close to Iraq. And the director of the CIA had told George W. Bush the Iraq weapons stuff was a slam dunk. Well, Obama's director of the CIA came over and very pointedly told him this uh, claim about Assad is not a slam dunk. Uh, and in fact, the evidence – you know, no evidence has ever been produced by the White House, and evidence that's been claimed in the military uh, has never been substantiated. And it looks more likely than not that it wasn't Assad who launched that chemical weapons attack, uh, which I, I – Hasten to stress is not some sort of depiction of Assad as some sort of angel. Uh, it's simply the, the, the state of the evidence around that attack. So Obama did not want to do something that was that similar to Iraq 2003 in 2013. Start a war on the basis of shaky evidence about chemical weapons. Um, now, now the big push is, is to arm so-called moderates in Syria. Uh, there was a State Department official asked at a press conference a couple weeks ago. This was before Syria retook the town of Palmyra from ISIS. Do you want Syria to retake this town or not? Now, most people in the United States would say, yes, 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 ISIS is evil incarnate. Let Syria take back that town no matter what, how evil Syria is. But this guy couldn't answer the question. Because the priority for the U.S. government has always been overthrowing the government of Syria, creating another disaster. Hillary Clinton to this day says Obama was wrong not to bomb Syria in 2013 and likely has not put ISIS in charge of the whole country. And this is why a lie that's been told about, you know, to try to start a war three years ago matters. Because... Even though the New York Times quietly retracted its claims of evidence about the the Syrian chemical weapons attack, the New York Times editorial today simply stated as a matter of fact, as all their articles do, as all the corporate media in the United States does, that Assad attacked people in 2013 with chemical weapons. Hillary Clinton is going to cite that supposed fact as long-established fact when and if she bombs the hell out of Syria. So it matters going forward that we keep up the pressure on, the, on these claims uh, that have gone by. Imagine, imagine now if, if Egypt responds to a terrorist attack on an airplane the way the United States does. I mean, be very, very glad there is only one United States in the world. And, and by the way, I got the news from Hillary Clinton this morning that it was definitely a terrorist attack on that airplane, that Egyptian airplane. And several hours later, I mean just minutes ago, I was still getting the news from other sources that there really isn't any evidence either way and we don't know yet. (laughs) So whatever it turns out to be, there are those who want excuses for wars uh, and will make the worst of them. And these wars, by the way, are one-sided slaughters. This is what the U.S. media misses most, and this is where we fall shortest in terms of peace activism in the United States. Veterans groups are some of our best peace activists, and and veterans and military family groups, like Military Families Speak Out, are are some of our best activists. I I think I've spoken at the last three national conferences of veterans for peace, but all of the focus on the suffering of U.S. participants in U.S. wars misses over ninety-nine percent of the suffering because these are one-sided slaughters of civilians. Uh, and and these, are, this is, these are some of the fundamental grand-scale lies that we're told about all of these wars. Um, MacDill Air Force Base, I was also asked about uh, where CENTCOM is on this radio show. And, I looked at its history, and by the way, it's wasting like the perfect piece of real estate on the end of a peninsula in a beautiful bay. I mean, get rid of that thing. But, but it is, I looked at its history, and looking at when they started building it, it very clearly was part of preparations for the Good War, World War II, which was, by the way, not a surprise. There were years spent by the United States government in conscientiously provoking Japan, in trying to fulfill the promise to Churchill to get into the European war by provoking Japan. That night, Roosevelt drafted a declaration of war against Japan and Germany and was talked into taking Germany out of it. Before Pearl Harbor, the United States had built up its military bases in this country and overseas, in preparation for World War II on a massive scale in Wake Island and Midway and Guam and the Aleutians and Hawaii in the Pacific, and then in the Atlantic as well. It was arming and supplying Britain, not just as a friendly neighbor putting out a house fire next door, as Roosevelt characterized it, but in exchange for bases that the United States wanted uh, in the Atlantic and the Caribbean, giving airplanes and trainers and pilots to China, against Japan. Um, you know, starting the draft, starting the military draft, creating a list of every Japanese American in the country. right? You know, all of this stuff happened long before the surprise attack on the innocent bystander that was obliged to get into the good war for the sake of the world. It, the, I, I, I bring up World War II because everybody brings it up in the questions and answers, uh, because it is... You know, our number one topic of entertainment, our number one myth, it is our foundational myth now, has replaced the revolution. You know, our society was founded on World War II. And you ask people about the program that has been the top project of us as a society, our number one expense for each of the past 75 years. And 99% of people will go back 75 years to find a justification for it. They won't say next year's military spending is justified by Vietnam or Iraq or any of the dozens and dozens of other wars of the past 75 years. They'll go back to World War II. And we don't do that with anything else. We just don't. And it's a completely different world you're talking about. Different colonialism, different empire, different military, different weapons, no nukes. I mean, you're talking about a very different world to go back to, to seek out a justification for 2017, $610 billion into the Pentagon. Um, the, the, the lies that were told about World War II at the time were mostly defensive, right? I mean, Roosevelt just copied Wilson, Ships that were helping British planes were supposedly innocently attacked. Uh, He, you know, precursor to Karl Rove, forged documents, a map of how the Nazis are going to carve up South America, Nazi plan to eliminate religion from the world and all of this. Uh, But they've been overtaken through the decades by the humanitarian lies, by the evil of Hitler, by the threat to the Jews and the other victims. And so it's important for us to remember that a ship of Jewish refugees was chased away from Miami by the Coast Guard, that the United States would not allow Jewish refugees in, and that the majority of the U.S. public favored that position, as did the other Western nations, which met and agreed not to allow Jewish refugees. And the peace activists, the peace groups that were doing the work to get the Jews out of Germany went to Churchill and his uh, foreign secretary, Anthony Eden, and said, can't you talk to Hitler? And get these people out. They're going to kill them all now that you wouldn't let them out. And, you know, first they say, well, we can't talk to Hitler. As they, you know, we can't talk to terrorists. But they were negotiating with Hitler about prisoners of war and everything else. Finally, they said it would be too many ships. It would be too big an effort if he said yes. When the British had, you know, evacuated their entire army that, you know, they were perfectly capable of doing it. It was not a priority in any way. Not a single military or diplomatic step whatsoever. Not a single poster that says Uncle Sam wants you to save the Jews. I mean, it was a justification for the war after the war. Um, So, you know, Hitler is not coming to get you. He just isn't. You know, Hillary calls Putin Hitler. Kerry calls Assad Hitler. They aren't Hitler. Even Hitler wasn't Hitler. Um, And everybody who justifies World War II doesn't justify World War I. I'm sure you know there's gonna be somebody smart enough to try a justification for World War I, but almost nobody tries. They're building a monument now in Washington DC to World War I, but almost nobody tries that. Yeah, you're gonna try it that, when we get to questions and answers, but almost nobody tries it. They are building a monument to it, and President Obama has declared Korea a success now, and they've got a 20-some million dollar program to commemorate the war on Vietnam. They, they know the importance of past wars. But you didn't have to end World War One in a manner that numerous smart people predicted on the spot was going to create World War Two, and you didn't. Wall Street didn't have to spend decades funding the Nazis as preferable to the communists. You know, these are choices. These are options. Um, we we also know a tremendous amount now about the power of nonviolence that wasn't known then and how effective it was when the Jewish women went in the streets in Berlin and said, let our husbands out, and they did, and more people started to join, and they called it off. And we know how effective it was when people resisted Nazi orders in Eastern Europe and in Scandinavia. You know, Now we know so much more about what can be done in terms of preventing crises and then dealing with them when they arise nonviolently that we have far better tools than were available. Um... On top of which, World War II didn't look anything like it does in U.S. movies. It was essentially a Soviet victory. The Soviets did most of the killing and dying. So you you celebrate it as a victory for democracy, well, why not for communism? It wasn't a victory for an ideology. It was the single worst thing the human species has ever done to itself on Earth in any short period of time. And several times the number of people who died in the camps died in the war. Innocent people outside of the camps, killed by the Germans, killed by the Americans, killed by the Japanese, killed by the Russians. This is a very, very difficult thing to call good when you go back and look at it in any any sort of detail. And people who supported it, millions of people who supported it, stopped supporting it halfway through when it became all-out slaughter of civilians, killing hundreds of thousands of people in cities, burning them to the ground. This, you know, when the, when the demand became as the title for the statue by the water in Sarasota, unconditional surrender rather than a negotiated peace, well, then many people said this, is, this has gone too far. And when they dropped nuclear bombs on two cities with no justification whatsoever, and we can talk about those lies and the lies of Truman going on the radio and saying it was a military base and so forth, President Obama is about to go to Hiroshima and he's not going to apologize, and he's not going to admit that there was no justification whatsoever for killing hundreds of thousands of people. He's going to maintain that long-standing pretense. I mean, they, they, will, they will fight over these things for centuries. The, the, the Maine blowing up in Havana Harbor in 1898. You know, Spain wanted a third party. International arbitration will abide by whatever decision. The United States, and the, by which I mean its newspapers and its president, wanted a war. But they will still fight over that to this day. And they got the mast of the main at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, you know, to celebrate these lies. Well, they're going to keep lying about Hiroshima for many years to come. And during this, this quintessential good war of good against evil, by the way, there was an apartheid state for African-Americans in this country, that is, you know, the remnants of which are still reflected in this room and every room I go into. The segregation of our society. There was camps for Japanese Americans. There was eugenics and human experimentation before, during, and after the war. Uh, and there was an expansion of U.S. Empire that hasn't quit. And there was the hiring of hundreds of top Nazi officials into the U.S. military to go start NASA in Alabama and beef up the, the Nazism of the U.S. military across the world. So, you know, I don't, I don't find it very good. In fact, I wish it would end someday. <laughs> you know, taxes used to end. After the Civil War, World War I, you know, taxes went away again. Massive government went away again. World War, no, no ordinary people got taxed until World War II. And they had to make Disney cartoons to celebrate the victory taxes to get people to do it. And then they never went away. And the troops never came home from Germany and Japan. And the military expansion and the bases and the permanent industry of weapons making never went away again. There are hundreds of thousands of unexploded U.S. and British bombs in the ground in Germany to this day, killing people every year. I I got an email this morning uh, about... Something that happened in Vietnam yesterday, I get these emails from a U.S. veteran named Chuck Searcy in Vietnam who's been working with Americans and Vietnamese for years and years and gotten thousands, tens of thousands of of landmines out of the ground safely. One of his people was blown up yesterday trying to remove a landmine. This is the, the war in Vietnam, still killing. The war in Germany, still killing. Um, you know, the, it, doesn't, it doesn't end. Um, you know, when, when I say there's no good war, somebody will inevitably raise their hand and say, well, what about the Iraqis fighting back? What about the Vietnamese fighting back? You know, and, you know, I have a few answers. Um, for one, I'm not going to Iraq and telling Iraqis not to fight back. And if... The United States stops attacking places like Iraq. There will be no need to fight back, and the question goes away. Um, but in addition, it is you know it is not your only option, and in many many cases today, it doesn't look like the strongest option uh, to fight back with war. Um, the other the other thing I hear, and I heard this this evening at at dinner, is that is that war is inevitable, it's natural, it's human nature. You can try to get rid of it, minimize it, make it a little bit better, but it's, it's built into humanity. Well, you know, 80% of the troops in the Good War, in World War II, didn't fire their guns at the enemy, couldn't bring themselves to do it. We've had to improve the training and conditioning over the past decades to get more people to be willing to kill which is the least natural thing you can do to face death and to take, death, uh, to take life away. There, there is yet to be recorded by any doctor a single case of post-traumatic stress disorder from war deprivation. The top killer of U.S. troops is suicide. You're going to tell me this is natural? 96% of humanity, well, at least 90% of humanity is represented by governments that put dramatically less into war and militarism than the United States, in many cases, zero. You have 99% of the people in this country not participating in the military. 44% will tell a pollster, I would fight in a war. What's stopping them? We got more than we can count. They wouldn't fight in a war. They want to think of themselves as someone who would fight in a war Uh, and, and, you know, it's incredibly encouraging that around the world, some of those numbers are down to single digits and teens uh, of percentage of a nation that would fight in a war. That 44% is very high, relatively speaking. Um, but the drugs that they give these young troops to send them back in again, that sometimes make them more suicidal, I mean, this is the most unnatural thing you can come up with. Um, the other, the other thing you run into with this idea that we went off the tracks in two thousand three, or in nineteen forty six, or in eighteen ninety eight, is that we should get back to the good old days. You know, I mean, every petition, I mean, eliminating the super delegates from the Democratic Party. Let's get back to the good old days. There was no good old days. Let's. Let's get back to the days without war, without lawless slaughter, without mass killing, without modern weapons that killed more civilians than troops. Let's go back to, you know, friendly teamsmanship where armies killed in a field and only the troops died and you helped the wounded. And it didn't exist. It never happened. The New York Times last week announced that that Obama has set a record as the first U.S. president to oversee serious wars for the full eight years, two terms. Well, first of all, he's got eight months left, so they're predicting the future, but it isn't, you have to write off the Native Americans as non-real people to make that kind of a claim. The United States was at war before there was a United States, during the Revolution, (laughs) and ever since. The goal of which was the responsibility of the white race, its manifest destiny to dominate the continent and the continents beyond. To dominate the globe. There are people who in 1989 thought if the communist threat went away, all the wars would go away. And then all the wars didn't go away, the US kept making war everywhere, and people said, oh well, it was about the communist threat up until then, now it's about a different threat. No, no, there were no good old days. The United States has been seeking to dominate the globe since before there was a United States, and a big motivation of the revolution was just that—the ability to move westward uh, over the mountains without British uh, impediment. Um, the, uh, the I'm probably talking too long, and I want to get lots of questions. But a couple more important things because I don't want to get accused of leaving out too many of the really important wars. I, I don't. I won't try to get to all of them, but. That New York Times editorial today on Russia listing some of the lies. Number one, Vladimir Putin is coming to get you. One of the ways he's coming to get you is by dropping food on Syria. Outrageous behavior. All right. uh, there, there was a, There was a U.S. Air Force... Expert who told the Smithsonian Magazine about a month ago, we have a technology to drop food from high altivation in high winds accurately because the UN is having trouble dropping food near people who are starving to death. But we would never use it uh, in a merely humanitarian operation because it costs $60,000. Each missile, $1.4 million. They're throwing them like confetti. This is This is the problem of priorities. I don't care, you know where and why and when and what technology Putin wants to drop food. I want everybody dropping food. You know, the, the, if the United States would put a teeny fraction of what it's putting into killing people, into dropping food, think where we would be. Um, somehow I, in my tiny writing I missed from way back on the first page, uh, what do you do about ISIS? This is, the, you know, another one I'm going to get. What do you do about ISIS. Um, I, I won't do Rwanda until the questions and answers. But you know, first of all, you don't create it in the first place. You don't destroy Iraq. You don't destroy Libya. You don't destroy. Contribute to destroying Syria. Uh, you, when it develops, you don't go overthrow the Syrian government, as uh, Secretary Clinton says you still should have done, uh, and. You don't do what ISIS wants. It puts out movies saying, "Please attack us; it will boost our recruitment." You don't do it, uh, and you don't keep arming it. You know what? What was Benghazi that everyone likes to scream about? It was a place where they were shipping weapons from Libya to Syria. The United States has been arming Al Qaeda, Al Nusra, al- allied groups, and ISIS directly and indirectly. And ISIS seized all the U.S. weapons in in Iraq billions and billions of tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons from Iraq we think of we think of these places as backward and violent and they have bad religions and so forth but where do the majority of the weapons come from they come from the united states and the rest come from europe and russia and china they don't come from the middle east you know if you know imagine how that the number of people in this country, as has been famously cited many times in recent weeks, that are killed by toddlers with guns far outstrips those killed by foreign terrorists. But would we think of our toddlers as inherently violent if we weren't leaving all the guns lying around? We think of the Middle East as inherently violent, but arm it to the teeth. This is the point of establishing that some group in Syria is a moderate, so they can get back to arming it, a moderate. And you know what a moderate means. In terms of war, a moderate and an extremist in Syria and anywhere else in Pentagon speak, mean the exact same thing, people willing to wage war. The difference is, what is their post-war utopia? What sort of society do they want to see after the war? Well, they're both gonna see everybody dead and all the buildings in rubble. That's what they're gonna see. But some of them are moderate, some of them are extremists, uh, depending on that ideology. This, you know, this is how they're picking who to arm in Syria. It's never about war or peace. It's always about a cause or an ideology that's associated with a war. You know, in uh, where I live up in Virginia, there's a big controversy of people trying to get all the Confederate war hero statues taken out of the parks, which is, you know, the only kind of statue we have there. Uh, And because, you know, not because they fought a war. You know, and you know, a war where the North, by the way, was the aggressor, not the South, but because they are associated with slavery and racism, right? Uh, so take those statues out. But if I were to say there was an even worse war the next century, and that statue down by the water in Sarasota celebrates unconditional surrender and a hero coming home, and you know, we should take that statue down too. People would say, "Oh, but that was that those are good things. they're hugging and kissing and coming home. Wow, what is there to oppose? Well, I'm opposing the glorification of war, and it's glorified in my town with General Lee on a horse, and it's glorified here with a soldier getting a getting a kiss from somebody who's apparently unconditionally surrendering to him uh the so the 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 United States is provoking not just China in a major way where Chinese actions in the China Sea are US are aggression against the US just like the Vietnamese in the Gulf of Tonkin was aggression against the US but Russia when when Russia agreed that Germany could reunite when you know NATO promised the United States promised no expansion an inch eastward They've added the whole of Eastern Europe, and they're trying to add a partnership with Ukraine and Georgia. They've put tanks into Georgia. They last week opened a a military defense so-called base in Romania. They started construction of one in Poland. They're putting major military operations in Poland on the Russian border. U.S. ships in the Black Sea. Russian planes coming near U.S. planes and ships in the Baltic are once again, Russian aggression against the United States. Uh, this, So this editorial, I, I, I barely touched on the list of lies in the New York Times editorial. Putin is now responsible for the Syrian war. Assad would be gone if not for Putin. Putin is, you know, aggressing against the Ukraine and invaded the Ukraine. And remember when we were getting those stories every week, Russia has invaded the Ukraine, and you wait for the photographs or something, and then, you know, a couple weeks later, Russia has invaded Ukraine. They didn't. Uh, The, uh... I can't read my writing. Uh, Oh, according to the New York Times, NATO was demilitarized when the Cold War ended. Now, how do you demilitarize a military partnership that from that date to this, you know, added twice as many members uh, and moved up to the border of Russia? This is dangerous preparation of, of an enemy. Um... Two more things. One, I, I, this, this came up in a conversation here earlier. The draft. One of the amendments that got killed by the House of Misrepresentatives this week uh, was to add women, young women, to selective service to require that when anybody turns 18, you don't have to be male anymore. You've got to register for the draft. And, they, and the people who killed it were are people who get their ideas about women's rights from the Bible, right? I mean, they are people who don't think women should have jobs, right? This was the ideology of the Congress members who killed it. But they did the right thing. They should have killed it, and they should kill it for men too. And there is, in fact, legislation in both houses of the Congress that would end selective service, which hasn't been used since Vietnam, uh, but costs a fortune and causes all kinds of problems and doesn't allow conscientious objectors to take that position and so forth. End it for men and women. There is legislation for, to do that that should be supported, uh, and we should build a big coalition with people who, who think it would be wrong to send young women off to war and get them to start caring about young men too. Uh, the reason that I disagree with a lot of peace activists who say, well, bring back the draft and the wars will end, is that it didn't work in the Civil War and the World Wars and and in Vietnam, the United States government killed four million people, and hasn't killed anywhere close to that in any of the any of the many wars since, and it's not a good enough trade-off for me, that we get bigger budgets for peace organizations, once we kill four million people, uh, I, you know I, I think. If we're going to end war, we've got to work to end war. And young people are never going to believe, and they're right, that a draft would be implemented fairly at all. You know, It's not like people in places of power are going to see their kids uh, drafted. Um, on top of which, every time you question the importance of voting, you know, do I really have to hold my nose and vote for that one over that one? My God, people will tell you there was struggle. People bled. People died for the right to vote. People struggled and bled and died to oppose the draft. You know, I mean, imagine Eugene Debs, Bernie's hero, in jail in Atlanta, getting a million votes for president, hearing that we want to bring back the draft so it'll boost the peace movement. I don't, I don't think he could speak if he heard that, you know. So, yes, honor, honor things that people bled and died for. Um, but find young people other options, other careers. End the poverty draft as well as the draft, um, and ban all military conscription on earth. Um, so, the last thing I'll mention is that I'm working on a group called World Beyond War, which is an effort... To End all wars uh, and has a very short statement. I'll pass around a clipboard in a minute You can sign if you want a short statement That's been signed by people in a hundred and thirty some countries and growing not the Pentagon's hundred and seventy five But getting close uh, That is working in numerous ways to try to end all war and I was I was asked to say a few things about what you can do And I heard a number of wonderful projects being worked on before I even got up here uh, So you should do those but I think you know the number one thing you should do is stop imagining you know this bizarre very new very american idea that elections have ever significantly changed anything as emma goldman said if elections changed anything they would ban them uh, you, 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 you we can't do without them we don't want to get rid of them i'd like to start having open accessible, verifiable, fair elections without the money, without the, the horrible communication system. But we don't. And to, I mean, reject, reject the outright lie that the Democratic primary is over, that's being pushed on you by every media outlet, um, and certainly there is a better candidate in that primary who can, of course, still win the majority of actual delegates. But stop imagining that that is the most important way to change the world. Uh, Women did not vote themselves the right to vote. We didn't vote ourselves out of slavery or child labor or anything else. Change comes from changing the society, from nonviolent activism, from education principally. Go and and talk to others, small and large groups, and educate people. Go to worldbeyondwar.org and get our... PowerPoints and resources and, and go do events, um, go to incredibly dishonest myth-making movies like Eye in the Sky that are made with the Pentagon and hand out flyers telling telling facts, uh, work locally, work on state and international means, for, you know, by and large, forget Washington, D.C., which is, you know, often wasted, um, Look to the models of Syria in 2013 and the Iran nuclear agreement in 2015 and ask people if we can say no to a war here, why not every time? Um, We're planning a big conference in Washington in September at worldbeyondwar.org. Look at that. Look at what young people are doing around Palestinian rights and expand that into opposition to not just Israeli wars but U.S. wars. Uh, Look at the incredible activism around nuclear weapons, the non-nuclear countries looking to ban nuclear weapons, help Japan keep peace in its constitution, help the people of Okinawa who just stopped a U.S. military base and get rid of all the other ones in Okinawa. help get nations like this one into the International Criminal Court. You know, there are campaigns I can put you in touch with that are working on all of these projects. Help resistors, help conscientious objectors, help people get out, Um, counter recruitment, counter the tests in the schools that the Pentagon puts in the schools, do cultural exchanges with targeted nations. Um, start, Start... thinking about war as something that we're going to eliminate, not immediately. We're going to reduce it, and then we're going to eliminate it. We're not going to fix it. Thank you.